as hell and I wanna get ill So I go to a place where my homeboys chill Fellas out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the six Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Bored as Hell podcast I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot And I am Andy Wilson, aka Citizen Bot, also a Big Shiny Robot And we're here this week to talk to you about three kind of big releases Well, two big releases and then one kind of small release We got Straight Outta Compton, the biopic about N.W.A., The Man From U.N.C.L.E., the spy thriller by Guy Ritchie. And our first movie is the really limited release, also video on demand, Fort Tilden. Now, Andy, you saw this one, and I didn't because, like you said, it was incredibly, incredibly small release. This is a really small release, so unless you happen to live in Dallas or Houston or Chicago, New York, L.A., um, Atlanta, a couple of other places, this probably isn't in your theaters, but... It is showing up on video on demand. Where I saw this movie was at South by Southwest, and this was my favorite comedy <clears throat> by Southwest. Uh, this is a story of two girls named Allie and Harper, uh, and it kind of ends up being a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead sort of comedy of errors and absurdist comedies about these two clueless girls. Uh, living in Brooklyn, living the bohemian millennial lifestyle, and deciding they want to go take a day at the beach. Uh, They're both kind of at a crossroads in their life right now. One of them is uh, applying to be in the Peace Corps, but she's not really sure that that's what she wants to do, but that's probably what she's supposed to do with her life. And the other one is just sponging off money from her dad and not really doing anything. and they have a series of wacky misadventures trying to get to the beach because, hey, there's cute boys that are going to be there and they want to. Ooh. Yeah. They're going to they want to hook up with these boys because it's the end of the summer and we got to do one last thing. Uh, really funny. Uh, a lot of uh, really smart commentary about, uh, like I said, kind of the millennial generation and Brooklyn and. Uh, hipsterism uh and also some really cute things like there's a there's a moral conundrum where they're trying to decide whether to save a a barrel full of cats uh yeah so it's a you know there's there's a lot here it is rated r it it earns its r rating uh between nudity and uh talk of a sexual nature um but uh, it ends up being just kind of a really sweet and somewhat thinky piece about this lost generation and what the heck that we're doing. So uh, I loved it. Um, new filmmakers, uh, Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers, who both uh, wrote and directed this, be on the lookout for more of their work in the future. Uh, I gave this 7 out of 10. I wrote oh, nice. Because yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there was... Like you mentioned, the, script, the smart script and actually was well done because the way you were describing it at first, I was just kind of thinking, oh, this is just another very typical teen slash college sex comedy. Or, but it's good to see that it actually had more to it than just just it had more layers than just that shiny facade. Yeah, it's it's really smart and the like. There's a running gag where they keep seeing Reggie Watts everywhere, and they're like, <laughs> Reggie Watts, that guy's everywhere. And they're like, Reggie Watts, that guy is everywhere. What's going on? (laughs) I mean, these are kind of really inside jokes. And I think you have to be 
uh, clued in to some of this, but um, it's one of those movies. Uh, I would compare this to SLC Punk in a lot of ways uh, in kind of its musing about what's going on with this generation. And I hope more people get to see it and, uh, uh, and think about that stuff and laugh. Cool. Well, like, like we said, it's a uh, video on demand, which a lot more movies are doing nowadays. We actually can watch them even the day of. Uh, they come out in theaters for these limited releases. Uh, and then if you're lucky enough to live in a big city like L.A., New York, um, you can definitely check it out there. Uh, one movie that you can check out no matter where you are, though, uh, is The Man from U.N.C.L.E. This is the new Guy Ritchie spy film. Um, Guy Ritchie, of course, we know from Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, and the Sherlock Holmes movies. Uh, it's based off the 1960s kind of TV spy drama. It stars uh, Henry Cavill as Napoleon Solo. He's a CIA agent in uh, East Berlin trying to rescue or uh, bring a young woman named Gabby Teller, played by Alicia Vikander, over to the West Berlin to the U.S. side. And we're not really sure why at first. However, they're uh, facing an Army Hammer, um, excuse me, Ilya Kurikin, who's played by Army Hammer, who is the KGB agent trying to stop them and keep thwart them and, you know, keep her on the uh, East Berlin side. So the next morning, uh, when they actually get to West Berlin, uh, they're both pretty surprised to meet together and find out that their handlers have teamed together to uh, pull a mission with young Gabby Teller. Uh, her father was kidnapped, and he is doing research that would make it very, very easily to enrich uranium. And that would also, at that point, whoever has that information, uh, could get their hands on or create a nuclear bomb very, very easily and sell it to the highest bidder. And in the middle of the Cold War, even though the US and Russia are fighting each other, that's the worst thing that could have happen. So all three of them are sent to Italy, where they meet up with Victoria Vinciguri, yeah, Vinciguri played by Elizabeth Debicki. She is the one who they believe has captured Gabby's father and is holding him hostage to make him make this bomb for them. And uh, basically, Henry Cavill's character and Army Hammer, the complete opposites. Uh, Napoleon Solo is very much the suave, debonair, kind of mischief maker of a spy. And Ilya Kurikin is, by the numbers, by the books, very, very serious. Um, so it almost kind of becomes like a buddy cop movie as these two people kind of both work together and fight together to basically save the world. So um, it's a lot of fun. I, I'd say this is one of the I say one of the funnier movies of the summer. Um, it's also a lot of great action. Uh, these the chemistry between Henry Cavill and Army Hammer is absolutely fantastic. I mean, these guys together uh, they play off each other very, very well. Um, even just their little physical clues, uh, they have great back and forth. Um, but yeah, overall, a really fun movie. I liked it a lot. Uh, I honestly, I'd say it's probably even better than Mission Impossible. Yeah, this was a absolutely great spy thriller. I loved it, and what really sells it is Guy Ritchie's attention to detail and his ability to nail these period pieces. Uh, when we were talking about this before, I mentioned how in Sherlock Holmes, uh, Guy Ritchie like makes me feel like I can taste the fog and mm-hmm. the whole soot as it's in there. It's, and he nails that same vibe of early 60s Europe and the, the swinging spy, gentleman spy scene. And on top of that, you have the great chemistry between your three leads. And uh, it, it is this odd couple. Uh, Napoleon Solo is a con man, basically. Yeah, he was, uh, that's how he got hired by the CIA was he after World War II, he started going to Europe and stealing art and selling it and finally got captured. 
Yeah. So it's it's great, and he it's so like people who who watch a show like White Collar or something like that who like to see the kind of oh well he's a criminal but now he's a good guy. Uh, there's a there's a lot of that. There's a lot of him being very dashing and funny, and uh, an Army Hammer is just perfect as the brooding straight man genius who is way more competent than this other Joker. And so the the two of them work so well together, and then they're playing off for uh, this this third person for Gabby. And he's just so exasperated with the two of them. Yeah, and uh, there's a great character turn for her in the final act, which I won't give away. Uh, but it it sheds a, a fun light on on the interplay between the three of them, and it's it's just great. It's a really smart script. It's a really funny script, and the chemistry between uh, the three of them just sells this. Yeah, oh. and oh, I would say we'd be remiss not to mention um, Hugh Grant, who shows up. As exactly. Waverly, who is the head of British intelligence, and they they get wound in as well because even though it's mainly the U.S. versus Russia, they don't want the bomb to get there. And I, I didn't recognize him at first because he wasn't playing the stereotypical humans, you know, type of character. He's funny. He really is, funny. He has some of the, the best standout lines. He uh, they give. I mean, for the brief amount of time he's on screen, they give him so much to do, and it's always really exciting to see like, an actor play a different type of role. Um, but also just thoroughly enjoy what they're doing and have a great time with it. Uh, and the same will be said with uh, Elizabeth Debecki, who plays kind of the bad guy, Victoria. Yeah. Um, she, she's the head of this corporation, and but she's still very much a femme fatale. I mean, every scene that she's in, she owns it. She manages to be, like we mentioned, Guy Ritchie, is, as a period piece, completely captures it. And like you feel like you're you're watching this like 60s supermodel the whole time she's on screen, but she owns that everything she's in. Yeah, she's she's great as the villain, and you know it just it mirrors perfectly uh, again a, a lot of those '60s spy movies, the the in like Flint and uh, Goldfinger, and some of the other Sean Connery era Bonds. They just nailed that that period so perfectly, mm-hmm. and it's it just stands out for me as as one of the best elements of the film. What I would have liked to have seen more is Richie is such a great visual filmmaker and they really don't let him off the leash very much. There's one scene near the very end, a big climactic uh, battle scene where he gets to do his quick cuts and, uh, and all of that. And it becomes a very Guy Ritchie movie for a few minutes. Some people are going to get annoyed by that. I really loved it and I wish they would have let him do more of that. But it's going to be really divisive to people, and I know a lot of people don't necessarily like that style, or else everyone, or else Rock and Rolla would be his highest-grossing film, and not Sherlock Holmes. And see, I, I disagree a little bit because uh, someone asked me, you know, what is it? What is it like? And I was like, it's like in the same way that I Sherlock Holmes turned out how it would expect Guy Ritchie to do a Sherlock Holmes movie. This feels like 100% a Guy Ritchie spy film. I mean, the cinematography is amazing. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned the quick cuts. There's some kind of cool little montages when they're, you know, or multi-camera views on the same screen when they're breaking into places. Um, he, I don't know what he did, but it's almost like he put a filter on the lens that made it, it, it looked like almost a 60s movie from the 60s, not just yep. the feel and look, but the actual what, the filming of it. So, 
I, I was very, very pleased. I feel like we got a, again, to me, this is a Guy Ritchie movie, through and through. Uh, it's not swept away. <laughs> uh, we, we forget about that one. Oh, Madonna, you horrible person. Um, but, you know, I, I, it was everything I wanted for a, uh, from a Guy Ritchie spy movie. Uh, it surprised the hell out of me because I went in thinking, eh, whatever, you know, I'll give it a chance to like Guy Ritchie. Uh, parts of it are almost Tarantino-esque, I would say. In fact, some of the opening scenes kind of bleed over into that territory where it, you couldn't really tell who was directing it. But in the end, it's very much his film. Uh, I loved it. I'm at a 9 out of 10 on this one. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit less than that. Uh, I give it a 7.5 out of 10. I really liked it. I would have liked it to have been a little more Guy Ritchie. Uh, and I, I guess we just disagree about how Guy Ritchie-esque it was. Yeah, uh, but, but, but it's still, it's still great. great so. <laughs> yeah, great time. And, and people... Uh, I, I saw someone else uh, say that this was the best spy movie of the summer. It, we've had some other really great spy movies. This might be the best one of them. But Spy, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, both very good. Yeah, this might be a little better. Yeah. I, we were, I was actually talking with a friend of mine last night, and I would forgotten about Spy, which is horrible because I love that movie. Um, it's It's been a great year for spy movies. We mentioned that with Mission Impossible. Uh, this would, in my opinion, be slightly above Mission Impossible as far as how well it was executed. Uh, but that being said, the other movie is still great, too. So if you love spy movies, there's at least two in the theaters you can still go see. Uh, spy might still be in the Dollar Theater. So definitely check them out if you haven't seen them. They're a lot of fun. So cool. Well, going on to our next film, um, it's definitely en- interesting, if not quite as fun, uh, completely different genre, is the biopic Straight Out of Compton, which chronicles uh, the rise, fall, and future of the members of NWA, who uh, were pretty much responsible for inventing rap in the 80s. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, those not familiar with NWA, this is a great way to get very educated uh, by street knowledge, <laughs> to take <laughs> to take the line from the beginning of the film and uh, from from the album uh, yes. of Straight Outta Compton. Uh this this film chronicles uh, the the beginnings of NWA starting in about 1985 and goes all the way through uh, into the mid 90s and uh, and the rise of, of Dr. Dre and uh, and Death Row Records and and what was going on there uh, and and kind of stops at that point so. Uh, anyone looking for uh, like a, a biggie Tupac movie, uh, none of that really gets addressed in here and stops kind of right before that era in the, the whole uh, gangster rap um, chronicle. Uh, but this movie stars as our big three uh, playing Ice Cube is his son, O'Shea Jackson Jr. I spent the entire movie looking at this like, how did they get a guy who looks exactly like ice Cube. oh it was like, it was eerie it was 100 yeah. percent eerie yeah and and who just nailed him it's like oh it's his kid yeah <laughs> it was perfect uh rounding that out uh playing dr dre is Corey hawkins uh who i remember a little bit from uh, iron man 3 and easy e played by jason mitchell who just nails nails it it's perfect oh my gosh a- an amazing acting job by him uh, rounded out, DJ Yellas played by Neil Brown Jr., 
an MC Ren played by Aldous Hodge, who uh, fans of the USA show Leverage with Timothy Hutton. Uh, that's yeah, uh, you will remember him very well. Um, NWA was kind of the the seminal gangster rap group. Uh, before then, you'd had some hip hop. Uh, that was charting. You had stuff like DJ Easy Rock and MC Rob Bass that was making it onto the pop charts. Um, but rap was kind of a kinder, gentler thing that was uh, striving to break into the mainstream. And then NWA comes out of nowhere uh, with this song, Boys in the Hood, uh, which uh, those of you listening to this, uh, that is our theme song. Yeah, the, the Dynamite Hack cover of it. So yeah, uh, for for a good reason. Um, as as a white boy growing up in Provo, Utah, uh, there was really nothing scarier to my parents and the other adults around me than gangster rap like N.W.A. And so the idea of um, you know this very soft spoken version of boys in the hood is uh i i just think it's hilarious and and plus they say bored as hell in it so there we go um, <laughs> so so there we go um but it, that's that's where we were in in the mid 80s early 90s where gangster rap was really dangerous and um nwa is touring around the country and uh their song f the police gets them in big trouble uh, there's a there's with the priest with the police surprisingly, <laughs> yeah, uh, amazing how the the police are upset by that. Uh, there's a great scene where they're in Detroit and basically the Detroit police try to shut them down, causes a riot. Uh, it's it's one of the best pieces in there. Um, but there's a lot in this movie about police interaction and uh, the whole idea of what it is growing up on the streets of Compton and and what that lifestyle is and uh ice cube in a press conference is like hey we're street poets we're truth tellers we're just talking about what it is that's our experience Mm -hmm. and and putting that out there yo man it's a lot of brothers out there flaking and perpetrating but scared to kick reality man you've been doing all this dope producing you ain't had a chance to show them what time it is so what you want me to do so this movie feels as much like a biopic as it is an incredibly prescient piece of uh, social commentary about our day uh, in the era of Ferguson and Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and, you know, the the hundreds of other police-involved shootings uh, that have happened in, this, in the last uh, several years. Um, these guys look more like uh, prophets than, than they do just rappers. So this is really interesting. Uh, that being said, um, it does gloss over some of the more nasty bits of NWA's history and uh, you know aspects of very misogynistic lyrics <laughs> and uh, allegations of uh, spousal and partner abuse and and other things like that. Um, I'm not going to step in here and like police the lyrics of nwa i mean there have been far better people than me and people from far worse (laughs) yeah people from the community who can do that uh but i do want to talk about this as a as a as a film and as a piece of art um 
and to you know uh ice ice cube and dr dre served as executive producers here on this film so i don't think they were necessarily interested in having that introspective moment thinking about whether or not their lyrics are are sexist or uh promote violence towards women um basically this movie falls prey to a lot of the same problems that most other biopics do uh where it does seem almost a little bit formulaic in in where they're going and uh what the the tragic falls are here uh that being said it's a hell of a ride and it just is amazing to see the acting going on here uh it really makes you feel a lot for these characters you know even even people who i thought i would not be sympathetic towards at all in the film uh i ended up you know being you know being very uh having a lot of heart towards them uh you know i kind of i kind of hated easy e going into this movie and it's like oh that guy just you know scammed mwa out of their money and uh he wasn't the real talent behind the group and everyone knew that it was Dre and Ice Cube and um but no this was um this told another side of it and um told a story of basically a bunch of friends who kind of got in over their head uh they just kind of thought they were they were having a band and and having fun and it blew up into something completely different than that so, yeah it's like you you said it's there's there's a lot here to love uh you know first and foremost it's the, the performances are amazing uh like I was sitting there and I even knew you know, it was uh, O.J. Jackson was Ice Cube's son, but still, every time I looked at the screen, I was I swore they like you. We talked about earlier they'd done something to make Ice Cube look younger. <laughs> I they like they had some mental or some three D trickery like like they did with uh, Michael Douglas for Ant Man. Um, but yeah, these these actors fully embody their roles. It, it's kind of funny you mentioned growing up here in Utah, like gangster rap was so taboo and kind of crazy. Was my growing up in Southern California at the time? Uh, you know, only an hour and a half away from Los Angeles. You know, we knew about it, but it was also kind of more of a white bread, very conservative type area I was. So, you know, growing up when I heard like, oh, this song called F the Police, you know, you can't listen to that. It's horrible. And it's these black guys being gangsters and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Of course, growing up and learning about this and learning about the history of that time period, um, we, it's more understood where that came from. It wasn't the fact that they hated they hated the police because the police were, you know, being racist. They were, you know, arresting them for no reason, being brutal to them, you know, beating them. And anytime you have a group of people who are so beat down, I mean, eventually, yeah, they will rise up. And they're not going to do it kindly and, you know, with, you know, oh, no, no, let's not do this. No, they're going to be angry. Um, and that's what the NWA really, you know, such a straight out of Compton really embodies. And this film perfectly portrays that. I mean, we were talking about Man From U.N.C.L.E. being such a wonderful period piece of the 60s. I mean, this is a great period piece for the late 80s. Yeah. And it seems, it seems kind of weird to say that because I was born in the 80s. Yeah. And <laughs> I was about 10, you know, uh, you know, 8 to 15 for the time period of this movie. But it's funny because there's so many things they, they were mentioning. Like, they have a scene where uh, folks in the family has everyone riled up about things. So you see People went out and bought the albums, and they got a steamroller, and they're you know, crushing them. I remember seeing that in the news. I remember the Rodney King, you know, beating in the trial and the, the LA riots, and uh, 
So there's, for, it was kind of funny because this is one of the very first movies that a biopic set in my lifetime that I can go back and be like, I remember these moments. Uh, and it's it's perfectly done here. Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. It made me feel old. <laughs> I, I don't know if it made me feel old as much as it was just, um, it, it was just almost kind of unreal because like I said, this is something about that happened in my lifetime that I knew about. Uh, yeah, going in, you know, I everyone always like mentioned Easy E was you know kind of the one who wasn't the talented one. Uh, it was really interesting to see that they they did show him in a kinder light. Uh, I think kind of one of the you know the movie kind of ends on a sad note, uh, but we all know Easy died of AIDS, and it kind of caps off after that. Um, but I think it was I believe it was O'Shea Jackson as Ice Cube saying, you know, I think he was talking to Dre or maybe even Easy E. I can't remember. And he mentions like, you know, man, we left a lot of good records on the table because, you know, the infighting and the problems with money that kind of split them apart and caused them to have kind of feuds with each other made us and them miss out on what could have been some of the best rap music, if not music, um, of the 90s. I mean, we did get a lot of great talent out of that, like Tupac and, um, you know, Snoop Dogg came out of there. But what would have happened if they had stayed together and not had the problems they did? Yeah, it's it really is amazing to think that. And the best thing about this movie is it sets these guys up as the titans that they were. And then it, this all plays out like Greek tragedy. That's each what I was and, just thinking, actually. <laughs> each and every single one of these guys had their own like Greek tragic flaw. And it ends up it ends up killing them in the end. And uh, you know, it's so terrible. And it, it's nice to see that sort of introspection, you, even when this borders on being uh, very hagiographic and really a, a little bit maybe too protective of some of, uh, of, some of them. Like, mm-hmm. they're not going to go too far. But at the same time, uh, they are owning up to, to their problems. And in that, it reminds me a little bit of... Uh, the Cameron Crowe Pearl Jam documentary that came out a couple of years ago, or uh, the Foo Fighters documentary Wasting Light that came out a couple of years ago. It's like these guys didn't do a complete warts and all, but they did mention that there were some warts and like we're willing to show some of that off. Yeah, and they, like, again, it's, if I was going to tell the story of my life, uh, I'd be pretty, I'd be honest about some things, but I'm not going to show the deepest, darkest thing they've ever done. And I don't think anyone would do that. So, they didn't shy away from the fact that Easy E was a crack dealer. I mean, in the very first, the opening scene of the movie, he's doing a crack deal. It goes wrong. Uh, so you know, they, they showed them being misogynistic. They showed them with wild parties, with treating women like objects. They showed them with guns. Uh, so they they weren't they weren't afraid to be honest as far as part of the interpretation. Um, but at the same time, you know, so they were neither saints nor fully sinners. They were just. I guess they tried to show them as like everyday kids who grew up in this yeah. horrible situation and made something of themselves. Maybe not in a way that my mom and dad would be happy to see, but they actually did stand up and do something. In fact, uh, one of the opening scenes, Dre's talking to his mom about how he's going to be a DJ, and she's like, you know, she's like, no, you need to get a job. He's like, no, I'm trying to do something. I'm, I'm better than that. And she slaps him and says, don't ever say you're better than any job. And then he went out there and proved that he could be better than just you know washing dishes at the McDonald's or something. Yeah. But to be fair, Dre was kind of the, well, he wasn't the businessman, but he certainly turned himself into that uh, and and spun that into 
into business after getting death kind of, row and aftermath and everything yeah, else after after getting screwed out of um what was going on with nwa uh you know he went out and tried to do things on his own and uh, uh and th- uh, this was one thing that i really didn't want to forgive them for but i kind of do in the in the end wrap up where they show like what's happened with nwa in the last 15 years they they do a shout out to beats by dre and oh god and, yeah and how they were acquired by apple for the most amount of money and it just felt like the worst kind of product placement and pandering and i'm just like shut up about your headphones <laughs> dr dre yeah. Well, I mean, hey, it, it, they're they're really crappy headphones. I mean, anyone who tells you Beats headphones, I mean, trust me, uh, I I deal with these on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter that he was able to get you know DJs to sign on, both in the hip hop and the the EDM industry, uh, and make them as popular as they are, go good for him. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Sell to Apple for your billions, great. Uh, they're crappy headphones, and you know it. So. I think it's I think it's more of a testimony to Dre's ability as a charismatic businessman and his influence on the music industry to this day that he was able to do that. Uh, he himself as a brand uh, rather than you know the quality of the product because yeah I completely agree with well, you. Well, and it's no coincidence that his first album in 14 years, Compton, dropped the week before this movie came out. So. Um, he's, he's, it's a great album. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic album, but yeah. you know, the marketing for this movie was actually incredible. Um, if you're anywhere on social media, you've seen the straight out of wherever, um, meme that you could make. Yep. Uh, so they handled this movie perfectly. I have a couple problems with it though. I want to don't want to skip over. Um, Paul Giamatti plays their manager, Jerry Heller, and he's, they, they set him up to be the scumbag villain of the movie. You know, for screwing them over, um, kind of alludes to what he did. Could very well have been what broke up NWA in the first place. Um, I'm sorry, I I'm so tired of Paul Giamatti, especially playing this you know sneaky conniving manager role, which he's done like three times now. Oh, yeah. um, you know, it's he was great in Sideways, and but he just he's kind of become this character actor stuck in the same role in every single movie. I mean, even in. Um, Amazing Spider-Man is the rhino. He was this annoying, sniveling little guy. Uh, it's really getting old. Uh, and every time I saw him, every time I see him on screen, I can't think of him as, oh, this is Jerry Heller. This is this character. I see Paul Giamatti. And it just completely just tears me out of the experience. Um, it's not that he's bad at what he does. It's just he's doing the same thing over and over again. I kept getting confused as to whether this was his character from Love and Mercy or straight out of Compton because they really seemed completely yeah. Or Rock of Ages. Or Rock of Ages. Yeah. yeah. So, again, he's it's the same role over and over again. Do something different, dude. Uh, and then my other big complaint is the movie's way too long. I, I know there's a lot of a lot to go over here um, because so much happened. But at two and a half hours, it, it had me check on my watch. Uh, it, it needs an editor badly. I mean, I understand there's this whole idea of the rock star slash rapper lifestyle that has huge extravagant parties with half naked men and women and drugs and alcohol. But there was a few too many of those scenes to where like we got the point of what was happening. Um, but we didn't need to see it every couple minutes. Like, Oh, they're at another party or they're doing this. Like we understand the lifestyle that they were finally able to live without having to see it every, you know, for 20, 30 minutes. If they would have cut a lot of that out and maybe shifted down to a two hour movie, I, I would have been happier with it. I could agree with that. I did not. I will agree that we didn't need to see the party scenes so much. 
uh, and that there was some stuff that was redundant in the movie, the length didn't bother me as much as it did you. But yeah. that's okay. And it could have been there was an annoying woman behind me who kept talking the whole movie, but that's, that's either here or there. But yeah, great movie, excellent biopic. Uh, I'd say probably one of the best I've ever seen in that sense. Uh, but because of Giamatti and the length, uh, I am giving it an 8 out of 10. I think it's a fantastic movie, but there are a couple things that I could have just tightened it up and made it a bit better. Yeah, I'm at exactly the same place, 8 out of 10. Uh, I think it falls into the same traps and tropes that a lot of other biopics do. Uh, I'm thinking of Walk the Line and Ray specifically. Uh, that's not a bad thing, uh, but it it does... There's no new ground tread here, but it it plays like a greatest hits of NWA. Oh yeah, after Dre. So uh, that, that's fine. Um, it, it works and it's really engaging for that. But it's not it's not near a perfect movie. Uh, but I I love it a lot. Yeah. That being said, I, I would not be surprised to see uh, some some of these actors, especially O'Shea Jackson, um, see their names pop up when award season comes around. Um, I don't know if it was exactly good enough for an Oscar, but I think you might be seeing stuff right, maybe Emmys or uh, Golden Globes. Yeah, I, I just I keep going back to Jason Mitchell and how he he became Easy E. And Jason Mitchell too. Yeah, I, that his name just slipped my mind, but I, I just I, I I bet we'll continue to see O'Shea Jackson Jr. Uh, do a lot of the same things his dad did. Um, <laughs> I think the Friday after after next. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly where I was going. Is they need to reboot Friday and uh, uh, have have him and uh, find someone to replace Chris Tucker, and, or or have him in uh, Twenty Three Jump Street. Oh, jeez, have him in Twenty. Don't mess with Korean Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> isn't the, isn't it funny to think that uh, the guy from NWA also did Road Trip? Exactly, or are we there yet? <laughs> or or that's that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, are we there yet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, different movie, different yeah, terrible was... movie, but yeah, <laughs> family friendly Ice Cube. Um, but yeah, who'd have thought? So, all right, well, that's all we have for you this week. Uh, next week we've got a couple movies coming out. We've got the uh, horror movie sequel Sinister Two about the ghost that lives in film slash pictures. Uh, the <clears throat> Owner spy comedy uh, American Ultra, and then the uh, I think it's the third movie in the series now, uh, Hitman Agent Forty Seven, based on the um, best-selling video game. So, kind of an interesting week. We'll see how all of that goes. Um, but be sure to check us out here uh, next Sunday or Monday, and we'll have those reviews for you. Take it out for us, Andy. Nowadays, everybody want to talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move the lips. Just a bunch of gibberish. Except mother, God about Dre. <laughs> Hail Satan and have a lovely afternoon. (laughs) Bye, Felicia. Punk ass tripping, but it's alright. Homie scored a key, he's gonna fly. Punk ass fly. Now we go out and about with Jiminy Glick. my guest today because he is an icon and he's a legend ladies and gentlemen the wonderful vanilla ice thank you for being here how wonderful to see you ice cube man that's me ice cube but you went by vanilla ice and then that 
changed? Here's the first question out of the gate, boy. Why change the name? I never changed my name. What are you talking about? It's in the notes. These notes rarely lies. Often they do, but rarely. Suge Knight hung you out the window, and you got so scared that you said, I don't want to be Vanilla Ice anymore. I want to be Ice Cube. That's what I was told. That's a damn lie, James. Never, ever have I changed my name or Suge Knight hung me out of a window. If Suge Knight hung me out a window, I'd remember. If Next Suge question. Knight hung you out of a window, both of y'all would fall out the damn window. <laughs> Can we start the interview, Let's man? Let's start the interview. You changed your name, though, from Vanilla Ice. How come? Never changed my name. My name's always been Ice Cube since nice. I was 12 years old. What about O'Shea Jackson? O'Shea is the name my mama gave me. Ha, 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 There's that wonderful Robbie Burns once said, the poet, Oh, the tangled web we weave. When first we practice to deceive. Who? Robbie Burns, a Scottish poet. A Scottish pimp? Poet. Oh, I thought you meant a Scottish pimp. Poet, a okay. Scottish pimp. I'm poet. a poet, too. A Scottish pimp, okay? L.A. pimp. Ice Cube. And then you became a technician. No, I became a rapper with the group N.W.A. And that was successful? Yep, and it meant niggas with attitudes. Oh, my goodness gracious. The word attitude is a word we don't use anymore. Yeah, but attitude is what people need. Some people need a little attitude in their life, you know, and it gets them going. And you did a song called Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton, That's yeah. wonderful. Where's Compton? It's right here in Los Angeles, a little south of where we are, a lot south of where we are. Oh, yeah. no, I don't, I don't, I've never been I there. I know, I know. I've never I been know. there. Trust me, I know. And I don't really plan to go there right soon. I don't think you ever gonna go there. No, 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 I wouldn't. I love Rex Harrison. He was one of the first rappers, because he was, you're my woman, different than a girl. And he did that in the wonderful My Fair Lady. I'd love to get your copy. And who? Rex Harrison. You don't know who Rex Harrison is? No. Oh, my goodness. I'm sending you a series of books over on people, people that you should know about. Do you know Big Sam? Big Sam. I have From my to... neighborhood. I these, had... are, these are people you should know. Big Sam. Do you know T-Bone? I've eaten a T-Bone several times. I had one for lunch, smothered it in bacon. <laughs> I loved it. Well, you eat all, my friend. I got a friend named Hot Dog and a friend named Donut. Do you know any of them? Why would I want to know any of them? They've got, they're sound like mental people. But these are people I know, people I grew up with. Why should I know the people that you want me to know and you don't want to know the people that I know? It's an interesting question you've laid on me, Vanilla. My instinct tells me that a lot of the people that you're referring to, I would pretend to like, but in the car ride home, privately, when I was doing notes to myself, I'd have to admit that I didn't like them. But I do think in reverse, if you met Robbie Burns or Rex Harrison, I think you'd say, you know what? They're fun. <laughs> All right. Now, in Three Kings, yeah. Marky Mark was in that, but he doesn't want to be called Marky Mark. No, don't call him Marky Mark. He has a third nipple. Did you know that? <laughs> How many you got, man? This is a true story. We had a litter of puppies. <laughs> and the mother died. Or, okay. or ran off or committed suicide or was depressed. And the, and the puppies literally nerfed on my nipple for fire. And I kept those dogs alive until I took them to the pound and had them destroyed. <laughs> Let me ask you something. I... Cube. Well, how, what do I call you? Can I call you something? Call me Cube, man. Cube, man. Cube, man. No. Let me ask you, what? Just Cube. Just Cube. 
What is the ice obsession about? Because it describes my personality. Because you could. Or because when heated, you melt. <laughs> Which one? What you here? think? You don't seem cold at all. You seem warm and loving. And you seem kind and gentle. Hold on, man. You do. Hold up. You Hold seem, up. You seem... Pump your brakes. Pump your brakes. No kind, no gentle, no warm. Ice Cube's my name. It describes my personality. That's it, man. I went into the room, and you had a leotard on. You had said, can you do this kind of stretch? And your leg was high up, and you had a thing on Nureyev on TV. Is that the kind of image you're trying to hide from people? What kind of image are you trying to hide from people? Because I hear your voice go up real high, then go down. I can, I can do a lot of things, but I tell you, I can't do a plie like I saw you doing in that room. This has been absolutely so much fun, Ice Cube. And I want to end this interview with a little rap song that I made about you. Oh, God. <laughs> he's got a beard. Some say he's weird, but he's my kind of fella, and that's true. And every time he walks down the street, he says, uh, I wish I could eat some beef stew. I haven't worked out the ending. I haven't worked out the end. I hope you'd help me with that. I'm going to end this interview. You know, I'm going to fire somebody. What have I done? You what have I done? You on every chance you can get, man. Someone tell me why Vanilla Cream Pie is storming off this set when I've done nothing. Interview over, man. Done deal. Oh, my God. Someone phone a replacement. Because, uh, well, Vanilla Ice is his own worst enemy. Thank you.
Right. 